I invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of Leviticus. Not in your bulletins, you see Luke 4. Leviticus 24. As I mentioned earlier, I had the privilege of going through the Ten Commandments. And the third commandment, which calls our attention this morning, we read something of that in Leviticus 24. And you can also turn in your Forms and Prayers books to the Heidelberg Catechism, which you can find on page 244 of Lord's Day 36. Just two questions and answers that help guide us as we consider the third commandment together this morning. Before we read God's word together, shall we ask for his blessing? Heavenly Father, we come before you asking that you would send your spirit, that we would have the eyes of our hearts illumined to the word that you preach to us, that you bring to us, that we would hear the voice of the Good Shepherd, that we would follow his commands, and that we would live in light of his sacrifice upon the cross, which calls us and names us Christian, that we would live distinctively Christian lives, and that we would honor the name that has been given to us through his purchasing of us. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Leviticus 24, beginning at verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the people of Israel to bring you pure oil from beaten olives for the lamp, that a light may be kept burning regularly outside the veil of the testimony in the tent of meeting. Aaron shall arrange it from evening to morning before the Lord regularly. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. He shall arrange the lamps on the lampstand of pure gold before the Lord regularly. You shall take fine flour and bake twelve loaves from it. Two-tenths of an ephah shall be in each loaf. And you shall set them in two piles, six in a pile, on the, tent, or on the table of pure gold before the Lord. And you shall put pure frankincense of Israel as a covenant forever. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, since it is for him a most holy portion out of the Lord's food offerings, a perpetual due. And these are the words that we focus on. Now an Israelite woman's son, whose father was an Egyptian, went out among the people of Israel, and the Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel fought in the camp. And the Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name and cursed. Then they brought him to Moses. His mother's name was Shelomith, the daughter of Dibri, of the tribe of Dan. And they put him in custody till the will of the Lord should be clear to them. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring out of the camp the one who cursed, and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head, and let all the congregation stone him, and speak to the people of Israel, saying, Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him the sojourner as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. Whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. 
Whoever takes an animal's life shall make it good life for life. If anyone injures his neighbor as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good. And whoever kills a person shall be put to death. You shall have the same rule for the sojourner as, and as for the native. For I am the Lord your God. So Moses spoke to the people of Israel. And they brought out of the camp the one who had cursed and stoned him with stones. Thus the people of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses. Thus far from God's word, shall we also then turn to the Heidelberg Catechism's explanation of the third commandment in Lord's Day 36. I'll read the questions for us. If you would, congregation, please respond with the answers. Question 99 asks us, what is God's will for us in the third commandment? That we neither blaspheme nor misuse the name of God by cursing, perjury, or unnecessary oaths, nor share in such horrible sins by being silent bystanders. In summary, we must use the holy name of God only with reverence and awe, so that we may properly confess him, call upon him, and praise him in everything we do and say. Is blasphemy of God's name by swearing and cursing really such serious sin that God is angry also with those who do not do all they can to help prevent and forbid it? Yes, indeed, no sin is greater or provokes God's wrath more than blaspheming his name. That is why he commanded it to be punished with death. This the church does believe. May the Lord add his blessing to his word. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord does not hold him guiltless, will not hold him guiltless, who takes his name in vain. Brothers and sisters in Christ, it's one thing to hear that law week to week as it's read in the Ten Commandments, but it's another thing entirely to see it applied. To see the law of God applied with tooth and fang. God is deadly serious about the holiness of his name. The Catechism says that no sin provokes his wrath more than blaspheming his name. That's why he's commanded to be punished by death. And is that a fair judgment? Some have said that God is a a moral monster for, for stoning a man who simply misused his name. In a moment of rage, in just a, a flash of anger. That God is being petty, that he is bloodthirsty, that the punishment doesn't fit the crime. And our scripture reading gives us this type of case study of this commandment. I hope you get a sense of the magnitude of what the son of Shelomith did and We read the passage together. After he cursed God, it sent a a shockwave throughout all of Israel. And no one presumed to know exactly what to do with his sin. Because it was a sin without precedence in the Mosaic law. We we read that in verse 12. They immediately put him in custody and and took him to Moses to wait until God would would reveal what what he would do with the punishment. There was no presumption, even on the part of Moses, 
of whether or not forgiveness could be offered to a man who had misused the name and blasphemed God. Until God speaks. And what does he say? He says, the one who blasphemes shall be put to death. His guilt remains without forgiveness. No one will be held guiltless who takes his name in vain. And congregation, the punishment is severe because the crime is great. And well, that's certainly not the attitude of our current cultural climate or in context. People misuse God's name on a daily basis, whether it be at work or in the classroom or in TV or the radio or the podcast or anything, you, you, anywhere you walk. His name is consistently and constantly dragged through the mud. He, his name is deflated like a tire that has lost all of its air. Treated as comedy, used as profanity. It's common, it's flippant, it's meaningless. And if you stop and listen, you hear a lot of, of blasphemy. But tonight, God, or this morning, God's word calls us to listen to our own hearts. Because if we stop and listen to our own hearts, we hear a lot of blasphemy there too. Remember that was the cry of Isaiah in Isaiah 6 when he said, Woe is me, for I am undone, for I have seen the glory of the Lord of hosts. And I am a man of unclean lips and live among a people of unclean lips. For whom the seraphim never cease to cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord, God of hosts. The earth is filled with his glory. And my lips are too tainted to praise him. But we far often too can, can be too concerned with our own glory. That's the shame of the third commandment. Our own reputation, our own name, our own glory rather than the name and reputation of God. And so we see here in this stoning of the nameless son of Shalometh the deadly consequences of defaming, of despising the name of God. And what is it that makes his sin so great? So, so great? Notice first what the name of God reveals to us. God's name is self-revelation. He tells us himself who he is. When God speaks, his words carry, they carry weight, they carry gravity. He realizes, he makes real what he says. He spoke and there was light. His words carry meaning. They don't come back to him empty or in vain. And his creation speaks his praises back to him. The, the psalmist praises God that all the earth sings praises to his name. Lord, our Lord, and all the earth, how great is thy name. He has created a world which, which creation itself reverberates. It echoes all throughout every tree and mountain, river, stream. And every person, it echoes and reverberates his praise and his glory. They tell of his wondrous might and works. They praise him for his wisdom and his skill. And Jesus even says of his, of his own disciples that if they were to fail to praise him, the very stones would cry out. Because everything is stamped with his name and for his glory. But God doesn't fellowship with stones. He doesn't commune with trees or with mountains or fields and stars, boys and girls. God covenants and fellowships with man. That's the mystery of Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him? 
It takes us all the way back to the garden. God, God walked and talked with the man. He fellowshiped with him. He held him upright with dignity and honor and, and glory. He gave him everything under his feet, dominion over all that he had made, so that he would use everything at his disposal to name and give back to God for his glory. The garden was a place where man enjoyed God's very presence. And in the presence of God, God himself revealed his face. Boys and girls, do you know that that's the story of the Bible? God is preparing a people who are equipped to be able to see his face. Why? Because you can't have a name without a face. You can picture somebody's face without having the name, or you can remember somebody's name without being able to picture the face. But the Bible is revealing to us that it's leading towards a time where we will have both a name and a face. The very end of the Bible, Revelation 22 says, No longer will anything be accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in their midst, and and we shall see His face, and His name will be on our foreheads. His face and His name will be ours eternally. That's the blessing of the third commandment. When God reveals Himself to Moses as, I am who I am, He reveals that He will make His promise reality for us. God will be our God, and we will be his people who enjoy his name and his presence forever. And that's the reason, I think, that it's necessary for us to read the entire chapter of Leviticus 24. Because after the Lord rescued the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, he he made provisions for them in the wilderness to create and erect a tabernacle, a tent in which God's presence would be at the center of his people. And at the end of the book of Exodus, we read that that the glory, the Shekinah glory cloud, filled the tabernacle in their midst. It was their cloud by day and their pillar of fire by night. And Leviticus then lays out all of these purity laws that are required for the people of God to meet with him in his presence. What sacrifices, what animals, what to do for atonement, who are to be the priests, What feasts, what festivals are to be observed? Who is permitted to be in his presence? And if we're not reading carefully, this story seems out of place. Why does Moses write about tabernacle instructions and then quickly he transitions into the stoning of a blasphemer? Well, notice the two symbols that we see in the tabernacle. We see the lampstand and the showbread. Pure gold lamps with pure oil that are to burn regularly and continuously before the Lord, and twelve loaves of of fine bread that are to be before the Lord in his presence every Sabbath for the priest to eat in his presence. It was a symbol of God's fellowship, of his presence. The lamps which burn with, with pure light were to be a symbol of of God's countenance, his face, shining over his people. The lamps which burn regularly, shining over his people. He says, the Lord, in Numbers, he says, the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. The bread of his presence, of his peace. 
The lamp and the bread are, are placed in the tabernacle, are the very symbols of the ironic blessing of number six, where the priest raises his hands and blesses the people of Israel. And what does God say? So shall you put my name on the people of Israel, and I will bless them. Understand what God is saying, what he's doing. By putting his name upon his people, he's speaking to them. He's calling them out from the world. He is specifying a people who receive his blessing. He's revealing to them that, that he is their God and that he, and they are his people. That they aren't to live like the world. They bear his name for his glory, to tell of his grace, to proclaim his praise in everything they do and say. The Apostle Paul says, whatever you do, and say, you do it to the glory of God. Word and deed, everything to the name of the Lord. Our lives, every action, every word, every thought, every deed is dedicated to the Lord. He makes us holy. He stamps his name upon our lives. Even at our baptism, I I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the triune God. He claims us as his. I'm not just a student. I'm a Christian student. I'm not just an employee or an employer. I'm a Christian employee or employer. His name is attached to me in everything I do. And what a blessing that is, brothers and sisters. His face shines upon me with blessing. His countenance lifted towards me because I have his name upon me. The great I am, the covenant-keeping God, is my God. His promise is faithful and sure because his yes is his yes and his amen is his amen. He speaks truthfully to me. He promises to me. He is an oath keeper. He swears to his own hurt and he keeps his word. Every day is bright because his face shines upon me and I've been called by his name. If you have some time this afternoon or this week to read from Isaiah chapter 43, Where the prophet says, But now says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flames shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God. And you are precious in my eyes and honored. And I love you. There is no more privileged position in all of this world than having the name of the Lord stamped upon our lives, his face, his favor, his presence always with us. But then that also comes with it, the responsibility of wearing his name rightly, doesn't it? We don't get to detach his name from our lives, say whatever we want to say or live however we want to live, act as if his name is empty. Because we bear the name of God, we bear his reputation. What we say and how we live communicates something about the name and its truthfulness. This is the second thing we consider tonight, that the names, or this morning, the name's reputation. And we consider it, by now you can see something of the seriousness of what we read in Leviticus 24. It's a horrible scene. It's a gruesome picture of someone who, who curses the name. Look at verse 10 and how this comes about. Now an Israelite woman's son, whose father was an Egyptian, he went out among the people of Israel, and the Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel fought in the camp, and the Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name and cursed. 
We don't know much about the characters involved in this fight. His name isn't remembered. His name is forgotten. It isn't written down in the book of life. His mother's name, Shalemeth, is remembered. Her name is recorded. Her name is remembered. But her son and his father are nameless. His father was Egyptian. We know from Exodus 12 that a mixed multitude left with the Israelites, and as such there were those within the camp who were from a mixed heritage, such as this man. And that's really all we need to know. This man wasn't a pure Israelite. He's part Egyptian. And in his words and in his actions, that's the part that's remembered of him. His legacy is Egyptian at heart. We read that he went out among the people of Israel. He saw an Israelite man and perhaps words were spoken. And a fight broke out in the camp. And push went to shove, and almost in a final act of defiance, the son of Shalemeth blasphemed the name and cursed. And here's the part of the story that hits home to us. Where, boys and girls, did this sin take place? He was inside the camp. He was still in the presence of a holy God. He was in the presence of God's favor and blessing, the cloud and the pillar, the Shekinah glory in their midst, God dwelling in their midst, and he blasphemed God. He spoke untruth about his name. He lied about his character. He didn't use his name with reverence and awe. He cursed him to his face in the camp. The only one injured in the fight was God's reputation. He was injured by the words slandered against him in his presence. He was verbally assaulted as a curse to his people rather than as a blessing. In a place where his face shines, where his blessing lives, his name is cursed. The Israelites knew the commandment. They heard it week to week, but they didn't yet see it enforced. And so they seized this man, they put him in custody, they arrest him, they, they, they brought him to the mediator, to Moses, to the mouthpiece of God, to the prophet, and waited until God would reveal what, what should be done in this matter. And what does God say about the third commandment? Never mind what the world says, never mind how they treat his name, what does God say about his name? He says in verse 14, Bring out of the camp the one who cursed, and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head, and let all the congregation stone him. It's an individual sin with community community ramifications. No one gets to be a silent bystander. No one gets to care more for their name or for their reputation while God's name and God's reputation is dragged through the mud. No one gets to to nod and, and turn the other way. Rather, they witness by putting their hands on his head that, that he is guilty of his sin and that his guilt remains upon his head. Moses can't mediate for this man's sin because God won't allow it. We hear in this a terrifying connection to the Day of Atonement, which you can read in Leviticus 16, where the priests laid their hands upon the scapegoat and it transferred the sins of of God's people onto the animal and he drives it out of the camp as an expiation of their sins. 
But now we read that there is no animal, there is no sacrifice. This man, not an animal, is driven out of the camp. He will bear his sin. And the whole congregation stoned him. He will not be held guiltless who takes the name of the Lord in vain. No sin angers God more. No sin provokes his wrath more because when God gives his name to his people, he gives himself to his people. It's personal. He becomes our God and we become his people in the most loving and and personal way. And the man, by blaspheming and cursing the name, says, says, no, thank you. No, 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 no. I don't want your name. I don't want you to be my God. And I don't want to be your people. Rather than being a blessing to me, you are a curse. And so in chilling response, God says, get out of my presence. If you curse me by your words, by your actions, you will bear my curse. And your name will not be remembered. And let my church bear witness and testify that it is not well with your soul, and you have no place among them, lest they find themselves in agreement with you. And you see the problem, don't you, brothers and sisters? God has taken the Israelites out of Egypt with a mighty and outstretched arm. But now he must take Egypt out of Israel, or he can't dwell in their midst. He won't be a God of the profane. He won't be God to the unholy. He won't give his name to those who take it in vain. He curses all that is unholy, all that is profane. God God has taken the church out of the world, and yet he must take the world out of the church. Or we will be guilty of blasphemy. That's the pinch of the law. We bear his name. We bear his reputation. We are his people. And that ought to cause us to pause and reflect for how often we live in a way that, that fails to communicate the glory of his name. How often we let the world control our tongues, our thoughts, and our attitudes. How often we cherish our own reputation over God's. How often we would rather live and speak like the world than, and, and, and live in such a way that is in agreement with the world. And then consider that the same God who commanded the stoning of the son of Shalemith is as holy today as he was when this man was stoned. He has not changed a degree in his holiness. And he has attached his name to us What an awesome responsibility that is, not to be taken lightly. Nothing offends him more when his name has no meaning in our lives and and what we say and how we act and, and consider the consequences of this man's blasphemy and curse. He's driven out of God's presence. God's face will not shine upon him. No one will atone for his sin. He bears the curse alone forever outside the camp. No one to mediate for his sin. And finally, consider the name's restitution. God's name must be restored. There needs to be a restitution for the the crime committed against it, which is why we read verses 17 through 22, the so-called lex talionis, the law of retribution. At a first glance, it would seem out of place, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, Fracture for fracture, but it's placed here to remind us that this horrible scene, as gruesome and and horrible as it is, as it's about to take place outside of the camp, that the punishment fits 
the crime. So that when Israel sees the disfigured body and marred face and semblance of this man whom they have stoned, they will be reminded that this is the curse of an injured God. This is the curse. When God's name is dragged through the mud, he will not sit idly by as his reputation is profane. Because that's what idols do. They have hands and feet but don't move. They have eyes but don't see. They have ears but don't hear. They have lips but do not speak. And the living God does. The I am who I am acts in accordance with his character. So that when the Israelites see the son of Shalemeth, they will know that, that God is active in their midst. And he will not hold anyone guiltless who curses his name. The punishment fits the crime. This man is no son of Israel, but of Egypt. And as such, he has no share in the camp. He has no share in the inheritance, no blessing, only curse. And so it is with anyone who fails to keep the third commandment. Of course, I hope you also see in this mangled son of Shalemeth's body, that you see another son, the son of man and son of God, the great I am incarnate the word in flesh appearing, the Lord Jesus Christ. Moses couldn't mediate for the great sin of blasphemy. He could only administer the law. He could only say what the law says. The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The law Moses spoke to that man thundered in his ears as he was being stoned. But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Amazing grace by which God would cause his name through his son to to tabernacle outside of the camp. to, To cause his face to shine on those who were caught in the great sin of blasphemy. To bless those who reviled him. Not to curse. To bear the curse. John chapter 6, I am the bread of life. I am the one who fellowships with sinners who eat of me by faith. John chapter 8, he says, I am the light of the world, the very face of God shining with blessing towards you that you might know his blessing. And he says to the Pharisees who cursed him, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. And he saw it and was glad. Before Abraham was, I am. And they picked up stones to throw at him. But he went out and departed the temple to Magnify the name of God before the world. He would say, my soul is troubled, but what shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. What does the Father say? I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The author of Hebrews gives us this commentary that Jesus suffered, not inside the camp, outside the camp in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. He went outside to bring us inside. You are not a half-Christian, half-world person. You are fully sanctified through his blood. He suffered the curse that that we would be brought in the very presence of God. Man of sorrows, what a name for the, the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. What a Savior. How good it is to know that Jesus died to sanctify us, for without him we are under that same curse of the nameless son of Shalemeth. If we do not call on the only name given 
among men by which we must be saved. That curse remains. But Jesus has come to redeem blasphemers, to cleanse their lips and their lives, to make what was once profane that which offers praise. And what a wonder that, that God who alone is concerned for the glory of his great and holy name comes in the person of Jesus Christ and is the only one who is accused of blasphemy. That was the charge that the high priest leveled against him. He is a blasphemer. And they hung him on a cross outside the camp where the name of the Lord was cursed. Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among scoffers because it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath brought me life. I know that it is finished. Do you know that it is finished for you, brothers and sisters? Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, fracture for fracture upon the cross. But we didn't make the payment. I didn't make the payment. The Father cursed His only begotten Son outside the camp that that you and I would enjoy the blessing of His face and His name inside the camp. And He has glorified His great name. In humility, He emptied Himself of all of the glory due His name. He came in the likeness of, of men and humbled Himself all the way to the cross so that He might exalt His name. A name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God. A name that he has stamped your life with. You are called Christian, baptized into his name. The son of Shelemith was forgotten, nameless, and accursed, dying nameless outside of the camp. But in Christ, your name is written on his nail-pierced hand. And you are remembered by God with his name upon your forehead, his face shining upon you. Therefore, how, he, how would he have us live in response? To live distinctly Christian lives in everything we do and say. 